The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome back. Um, so in this second half, we're going to be talking um, about uh, what does it mean to be a caregiver. And, um, and I have to just do a little disclaimer here because I'm used to moving around uh, uh, when I give my lectures to my students. But part of that is um, because, you know, they're all hooked up with computers and they're all wired in and taking notes on their computer. But really what they're doing is they're on Facebook or they're answering email. So I move around the room, you know, to look at their computer screens and intimidate them slightly. Um, but I'll, I'll stay put so that Brian can um, do the do the filming. Um, so anyway, what I wanted to talk about, and as I was thinking about preparing for uh, today's um, symposium, is that there's actually a fair amount of suffering around caregiving. And um, I had tea with one of my very best friends this last week, and he's been my friend for 20 years, and we've been through a lot together. And so I was sharing with him about this event and what I would be doing today. And, um, you know, I've, I've lived through him losing his father, losing his brother-in-law to cancer, and then losing his brother to pancreatic cancer. But he started to talk to me about some of the pain surrounding caregiving for his brother who died of pancreatic cancer. And um, this was six years ago. And he actually broke down sobbing there in the cafe. And he, his, his query to me was, do you suppose I have this much suffering still around this? And it came down to that he was there for his brother. He spent a lot of nights with his brother in those last days. He was the person who comforted his brother a lot. But his sadness was around the times that he ran away from it or left or couldn't deal with it. And I said, well, what... What was the feeling? And he said the feeling was fear. And I asked him what specifically he was afraid of. And he said, I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to do the right thing in that moment. And his brother, he said he was wild. You know, the pain medicine would wear off and he would, he was overloaded with fluid, uh, he was swollen, he was um, kind of out of his mind, and he was trying to pull out IVs, pull out cath- his catheter. Um, and he said, that really frightened me a lot. So there was a lot of suffering around that. 
My own experience around being a caregiver, um, you know, most of my career has been in women's health, delivering babies, um, working with women and their health care needs and problems. And for the most part, that's a pretty happy, joyful um, career path. But um, in obstetrics, when things start to go wrong, they go very wrong. And, um, and then it's very sad and it's very disastrous. So I remember um, one case, one stillbirth that I delivered. And, um, and I'll, I'll just share with you because this is the, this is the poem that I wrote after that experience, um, trying to process my own feelings. So this is called Lost. I delivered a stillborn today, six weeks shy of its full gestation, floppy and limp like a macerated rag doll. On the death certificate, I called it a stillbirth, But this was not a quiet demise, for this child had a howling face, bloody tears, and floated out in bowel-emptied putrefaction. There was a struggle, all right, around its wrist, twice wrapped tightly, its lifeline. Like me, did it raise its fist in anger? and shake it against the dark loneliness of the night sea? Or was it merely seeking its sucking thumb for comfort? My heart donkey balks at this heavy hall of false starts and missed birthdays. Wilderness way walking requires sure-footedness, and my legs are very tired. So this was not the last stillborn that I delivered. When I was in Zimbabwe working with HIV-infected women during their pregnancies, um, there were many stillbirths that I delivered there. And this probably um, during that time uh, and the whole AIDS epidemic and experiencing there, it there, a country that is, has been very hard hit, <clears throat> was where I first came into real uh, cognition of... Um, of this idea of compassion fatigue. Because among my co-workers, among the doctors and the midwives there, uh, there was absolutely nothing left, they told me. They were dealing with patience and loss at work, but when they went home, Their family members were also infected and dying. Um, Whole generation, middle generations, 
were being lost, leaving grandparents to tend, you know, five, six, seven grandchildren and the thought of raising them as well. And um, and so I think as care providers, whether we're doing it for our families, for our friends, um, or whether we're doing it professionally, this fatigue that can take us over is very real. Um, and And I think it's worth it to spend sometime looking at how do we cope with compassion fatigue. I'm a great one that um, when I have questions about things, I look for models. And so I, um, I started searching the literature for some models surrounding this. And one of the, the models, of course, that I looked at was Western medicine, or as Jeff explained, modern medicine or allopathic um, medicine. And, um, and he did a very nice job of, of explaining this mind-body um, duality that occurs in Western medicine. And this split that dates back to the Greek time, Plato um, was responsible for describing this. And probably then in the 16th century with Descartes, it really got solidified. Um, And so medicine has forever forward taken this approach, this rational, scientific approach. Um, Christianity has perpetuated that. Often we see the body in Christianity and in some of the the Judeo-Christian traditions as the enemy to um, the soul or uh, to the spirit. And um, and so how do we how do we really um, avoid this just chasing the disease? You know, organs become diseased, but people experience illness. The person becomes ill. So. um, So how do we stay in contact with that person. Um, An English uh, medical educator has rightly said that the secret of the care of the patient is to care for the patient, um, not the disease. And, um, And so I would echo some of Jeff's concern um, that he brought up surrounding that, and um, and we get we get caught in that. So if this is true, um, if if we need to really focus on the person of the patient, then I ask myself, okay, so which profession? 
is seen as doing this most compassionately. You know, which, com- which profession? Is it the clergy? Is it physicians? Teachers? You know, psychologists? Who does this best? Well, there are all kinds of polls and, um, you know, surveys and research on this. But interestingly, nurses are identified as um, the most compassionate caregivers. They also score the highest in terms of ethics and um, and trustworthiness, ability to trust them. I found that very interesting. They get an 80%. Um, physicians and... Um, Physicians and teachers get 75, uh, get, uh, 65%. Pharmacists, interestingly, get 70%. Uh, policemen are down around, um, 55%. Lawyers, we don't want to do any bashing here, but lawyers are down right around 15%. Uh, congressmen are at 8%, and lobbyists are at 4%. So um, just, just a little interest. So good, nurses are at 80%, but the good news, bad news in this story is... Uh, nurses also have a third of nurses leave the profession within five years. Now, that doesn't mean that they just change jobs or that they leave their first job in nursing. No, they leave the profession completely. So there's a problem here. They're, they're scoring high with patients but the retention, they're not staying in the job. Um, so that's, that's a, maybe not such a, a good model. Those who actually, so then this, you know, what I'm doing is I'm establishing my trail of, um, you know, looking at all these questions that come up. So the nurses uh, who actually do the best at staying in their job are those who are able to balance engagement and detachment. So maybe we need to look at that as a model for caregiving. So caregivers who can do this, who are able to um, balance engagement and detachment, they are the best able to affect outcomes without needing to control them. Okay? Doesn't mean they're they're control freaks. They can affect outcomes, but they don't need to control them. They're also found to be the ones who are most pragmatic. So they come from a standpoint of do what works. Um, they make conscious choices based on their own emotional needs as well as the patient's needs. So they do take into effect their own emotional needs. They set and maintain limits 
and boundaries for their uh, career actions. And they practice self-care more effectively than their co-workers who end up leaving the profession. And they're therefore less susceptible to burnout. So that's, um, that's something, something to think about. So self-care, and I talk to my students always a lot about this, that we have to, in order to take good care of others, we have to take good care of ourselves. So these models all sort of speak to the conventional wisdom about caretaking. Um, you know, they help us with things like timeline, um, deadlines. They help us with things like productivity, the demands that we have to be um, more and more and more productive. Um, they help us somewhat with uh, all of the regulations that as professional caregivers we face um, and as um, caregivers for our families, we're juggling many balls. You know, we're, we're juggling the balls of the people who are healthy in our families. We're juggling our own self-care and we're juggling those who have the special health needs. But what about, um, what about transcendent models? What about spiritual models? What about um, the truly compassionate uh, things that can help us? So for that, I, I actually went um, looking back at a model that, um, that I like a lot. And in Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism, this is the Bodhisattva model. Avalokiteshvara, the one who has many arms, many eyes, sees all of the suffering and has all of these hands to be able to intercede for this suffering. Um, the Bodhisattva is the, uh, is the awakened person who, um, well, I'll just, I'll read it for you because I think um, Reb Anderson says it very well here in his uh, being upright on uh, Zen meditation and the, the um, Bodhisattva precepts. So he says, in order to benefit all living beings to the fullest extent, bodhisattvas vow to enter the limiting, often painful ways of the conventional world, to accomplish them thoroughly and then by understanding their ultimate significance, transcend them. Bodhisattvas further vow that after realizing transcendent liberation, they will go, they will let go of the ultimate and return to the conventional world, join hands with all beings and walk together with them 
through birth and death. As the traditional saying goes, they go up and attain awakening and then they come down and transform beings. Their vow is to continue the cycle until all animate and inanimate beings throughout the universe are restored to blissful peace and harmony. For a bodhisattva, the bright red thread of the vow of compassion runs through the conventional and the ultimate truths. The vow guides and protects the bodhisattva in all modes of practice and in the transitions between them. The power of the vow rescues those on the solitary peak and sends them back into the wild seeds of caring for others. If they have fallen into the wild seeds, then the vow raises them up to the summit of the solitary peak. So this model of the bodhisattva um, brings up some questions for me. And, and as I, you know, engage with you in this symposium, I don't have answers. We're here to do this together. But the kinds of questions that I have about being a caregiver is where is the interface between my human frailties, in example, my fatigue, and that transcendent ideal of compassion, of um, really coming from a place that is um, awakened. How do I keep sight of the bodhisattva inside of me with the financial pressures that work um, imposes, with the time and productivity pressures, with the regulation demands, Uh, that malpractice realities impose on medical providers and, um, and just with the way that medicine is practiced today, which is very defensively. How does the care provider hold the paradox of the needs to practice evidence-based medicine and at the same time acknowledge and honor the uniqueness of individual personhood in the care plan. So what I'd like to do for the next several minutes is again have you break up into your groups, and it might be helpful since you now have some comfort with those three people, um, to break up into the same groups. And um, what I would like you to do, and we'll, we'll just uh, we'll do the same thing. Um, in fact, we have time. So uh, let's, let's take the minutes, those um, four to five minutes, to share in the groups your own questions and experiences 
surrounding what it means for you to be a care provider and what your personal struggles, questions, frustrations might be with that. And then we'll, we'll come back and join together. Okay? So you can get into your group and I'll uh, do a similar thing that Jeff did. I'll ring the bell and um, that can start the first speaker. So maybe just finishing that train of thought and then switching to the next person. finishes, maybe now switching to the last speaker. So as you finish off, thank your group members. And uh, we'll join together. We'll spend about 10 minutes here and 10, 15 minutes just sharing as co-caregivers what that's really like. One of the things I was um, commenting on that's, that's helped me as a caregiver, and I'm a, I'm a professional, I'm a physician, is to, um, you know, it was interesting as you were commenting on the different individuals and the, and the, um, the respect that they have, and to try to bring all those things together. I think one of the, one of the challenges that I've found is um, providing care can be a very lonely process, and, uh, and especially when it doesn't go well. And, and and to try to share that as a, as a team and to share that as a group and to bring together the talents of individuals uh, in a group process, um, I think helps, it certainly has helped me as a, as a caregiver to bring in nurses, to bring in pharmacists, to bring in social workers, to bring in nutritionists, and to really have a team concept that provides care. I think it helps the individual uh, providing the care. I also think that the patients that I've served have um, had a better experience in that way. Um, so I think that process of sort of diffusing the uh, maybe the responsibility, if you will, and, the, and to work together as a group to try to find um, ways to uh, provide the compassion, help each other out as well, to help each other when we're all um, uh, suffering and we're all uh, having a difficult time with, a, say, a difficult patient or a patient's not doing well has been a, a process that's been uh, effective in my life. 
Great. And, and, you know, you're right on target, of course, with this multidisciplinary teams. Um, this is all of us who are professional caregivers know that that's the impetus. So, yes, fabulous resource that sometimes we overlook when we just get stuck in our own little groups. Hi. Um, for me, it's um, on a, more of a, on a personal level. I have aging parents in their uh, getting to be in their late 80s, and um, I seem to be the one in my family. I have four sisters, and um, um, I'm the one in the family doing most of the caregiving, but I'm getting them more involved, and um, you know, I'm working on finding that balance between taking care of myself and also helping helping them. And I have been, you know, trying to let go so that um, and not be as available and, um, you know, really um, showing my sisters that they need to contribute and they are contributing more. And um, I think just backing off myself and, you know, just letting go also and trusting that, they can take care of them too, and um, yeah. So I'm just in the process of finding that that balance of taking care of myself, um, but also, um, um, you know, showing compassion for them and caring for them. Mm-hmm. Does it, does guilt come up around that, or did it initially? Um, well, I. I started feeling resentful, and I, you know, that wasn't a good idea. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that I started feeling resentful. Um, that I started giving up. I was giving up things I wanted to do mm-hmm. um, in order to, you know, take them to a doctor's appointment or take my mom to a hair appointment. And I realized, I, no, I can't do that. I still got to live my life and have my own life. And uh, um, and um, so I have one sister that lives very close, and she's really stepping up to the plate. And so it's more the two of us are more involved. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm making sure the others, you know, like my mom had, she has macular degeneration. She had to go to these, get a shot in her eye every six weeks. And I just, I told her I couldn't do it. And so uh, my oldest sister, um, um, my mom actually called her and asked her to take her. I said, Mom, you know, can you ask her? I can't do it. And so now my sister's doing that. Um, so, uh, so uh, yeah. I actually would like to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. And... I'm also a caregiver for my mother, um, who is right now in a transitional rehab center. Um, so my, I was telling my group my story. It went on for a long time. And I really want to ask this question because I can't find a balance. Um, I understand the importance of self-care 
and I try to do it, except that I'm the kind of person that needs to be alone a lot. Um, I, it takes me a long time to recharge and to, to find a balance. And I found that um, I'm also in graduate school right now. This is my last semester. I just want to finish my research and finish my classes and just get done. But with my mom's recent illness, I ended up having to drop a class and stop my research. So, but that's okay, you know, I can do it later. But the self-care part is much more difficult because I just don't have the quiet time I need, you know, to recharge. Um, my mom's in San Francisco, driving through the traffic, you know, in the city and on the freeway, it was, it's equally taxing mm -hmm. um, as taking care of my mom and dealing with all her mood swings and um, all the things that is going on in the rehab center, all the noise and all the people and all of that. Um, no matter how I try, I just can't find a balance. So mm -hmm. I feel like I'm kind of going out on a limb and just wondering when I'm going to crash. Mm -hmm. um, well, uh, one thing that I would say is, um, and that I think is important, I would really like to acknowledge that um, need for quiet time. Um, are you an introvert? Yes. So um, I am too. And, um, and sometimes I feel a little guilty about how much alone time I need to feel good. Uh, but that's where my stimulation comes, is my mental inner life. And the outer life is often very overstimulating. So um, there's, I don't know if you've seen this book that came out in the last year or so called Quiet. Um, it's a very wonderful book, quite well written, quite well researched about introverts. And the, it's, um, it's the subtitle is The Power of the Introvert in a World that Can't, can't Stop Talking. Um, and it's very good. And um, so if you need that part of yourself acknowledged and valued, um, I can recommend that book to you. But um, what... I, I don't have an answer, so I would open it back up to all of you. We have a whole room full of caregivers. Um, what, what do you have to say for her? I um, spent close to 40 years being a nurse, almost all of the time in ICU. Um, and I found that you know, working really long shifts and then sometimes I came home and it, you know may have to go back to work the next day. But I'm very fortunate. I live on top of a hill close to here, close to the top of a hill surrounded by nature preserves. And there's a place that I love to walk to that's maybe a 15 or 20 minute walk away. And I would go out there 
at night and face the west and be able to look at the Santa Cruz Mountains and sometimes fog would be rolling in or I would, you know, I could feel wind on my face and blowing through my hair um, right next to um, several eucalyptus trees. And for me, um, I'm not a very successful sitting on the cushion meditator. I'm much better in nature. Mm -hmm. And in those kinds of situations where I can just really hook into the physical sensations, what I hear, um, you know, any, and do I see any animals? Are there any deer? Are there birds? Sometimes there are owls hooting, um, looking up at the stars, or what's the phase of the moon? Um, I, I do that a lot. And I actually think my particular um, my diagnosis um, that my job very much um, contributed to me getting cancer. And um, so for me, this last year, when I haven't been working, it's been a lot more focusing in on healing and finding healing. And I think it's really important. Um, all of us in our busy lives can really lose contact with what we really need if you believe we have spirits. I don't know what that is, but I think that there is a part of us that really needs connection with nature or creativity or I'm hoping there's some way you can find some time to do that. Um, I just want to make a comment. I'm an introvert, and I have read that book. I thought it was excellent. It really helped me understand myself better, and that, you know, introverts recharge by being alone. So it's okay, and, you know, you need that time to recharge, and, you know, just, it is important. That's, yeah, well, everybody, it, you know, if you need a lot, you need a lot, and that's okay. One kind of practical thing, I guess, is if, if there would be any way to get the rehabilitation done closer to your home, um, that, and oftentimes people kind of go, and that's not possible, but if you really look at it, 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 it becomes possible. It's not easy, maybe, to make some of those decisions or those changes, but I think that's a huge thing. I think that commute would be exhausting. And um, the other thing, and this may kind of go against the grain of introverted advice, but I think there are... Um, for the type of care, there are support groups, actually, and I think even if a person's introverted, sometimes there's just, I think it can be a very isolating experience to be a caregiver, and they're very unique, especially with the parent, I think, an older parent, I think there are some very unique issues that come up, and I think it can be really um, cathartic even for an introverted person to go to these groups maybe just once a month or twice a month or something, um, and to have a chance to talk with people that are also going through very similar experience. So, Thank you. Yeah, excellent suggestion.
Yes, uh, top of uh, the, uh, you, you're saying, uh, my girlfriend, she's caring her aged mother, oh, but I, I can suggest her, you, if you can use private um, helper at, your, at her, your mom's house, if you, uh, the government can pay that. So that's what she gets payment and mother gets treatment, uh, mm -hmm. cared, I mean, as a cared. And that, uh, that is one comment. And for me, it's um, like uh, I've been cared, you know, because I had this chronic pain for 40 years and uh, I'm the only one who is standing here. <laughs> I'm more higher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I'm so, so fortunate and cared. Uh, and thanks so much. Um, and and uh, so so I didn't I didn't have chance to care somebody else, but one person uh, was our very my very close friend. We three of us was very very close friend, and he had passed away last year. And uh, I I feeling that I feel guilty that I wasn't be able to be with him because he had moved away uh, from here. And, um, you know, now it's uh, on my mind a lot of time that when this flesh was gone, now it's the remaining was the compassion of the, his, the person's, uh, the human, the gentleness. And that was uh, a lot uh, lingered to me now. And uh, uh, I, I feel I wished I was there when he had uh, had a tumor, when he had... Uh, if I was there, I could have uh, done something. You know, I could not give him a life, but uh, I, I could have much um, uh, uh, add to his uh, care. That I could I could have done that when, uh, and that's one 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 thing I'm learning a lot. And the other one is uh, because by I wasn't feeling very good. Even before a pregnant, a pregnant my son, it's 40 years ago, and I, uh, he's, he's in good place right now, uh, but uh, the, uh, I didn't care. The, I wasn't be able to care the, as much as I wanted to care him. Uh, he, he wasn't sick or anything. He's a very healthy boy. <laughs> he was a very healthy boy and genius boy, and... Uh, uh, everything, but uh, you know, in retrospect, in I, I am looking back. I am having the feeling of sorry to him. You know, a lot to him. <laughs> Actually, he had a, he had a second child had born last October first. One one uh, the second girl was born. Uh, his wife had born a uh, second child this October first very healthy, and she didn't have any injection or anything. But I, when I was uh, uh, child-born, was, I was dead. I just, that much, uh, I didn't have strength. So one is congratulations to them. <laughs> Thank you.
I realized that um, part of my anxiety or all of these things going on is my is that I don't trust the professionals that are caring for her, and mm-hmm. no offense to all the healthcare professionals on the, in the audience. No, um, it seems uh, this is kind of what I'm seeing in the our, our healthcare system that when she needed a lot of care, you know, she went from the ER to the neuro ICU, the care was fantastic. I could trust, you know, I, I can, if I go away for a whole week, I can trust that they really take care of my mom and everything. So it was like a five-star hotel. And then as she needed less monitoring, you know, went from the neuro ICU to the transitional ICU to the regular room and now in the, this rehab center, which is out of the hospital, which kind of went to one star. And I feel that I couldn't really trust these people at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, sure enough, there, there, there was a reason why I couldn't trust them because my mom fell down. And uh, who knows if she would hit her head again and have another hemorrhage, right? And so, um, yeah, so that really added to it as well. Mm-hmm. And so um, I really appreciate everybody's um, input on, you know, um, some of these things I have been thinking about too, but then where to let go, you know, and start trusting other people to help her. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, working with these things. That's a tough one, yeah. Mm -hmm. Anybody else have anything that they want to share about their experience in caregiving? Okay. Um, well, then um, what I would like to do is just have us finish with a little bit of a guided meditation for a few minutes. So maybe just take a comfortable upright or reclining position, whatever is best for you. And let's just start to settle deeply into the body again. Maybe a little rocking back and forth motion to find that place where you're centered. Where the breath flows most effortlessly. Acknowledging your body's participation this afternoon in this event, its support and strength for your being here.
And then perhaps also acknowledging any fatigue that is there. Where you feel it. What those sensations in your body are. Likewise, maybe also acknowledging if there's any fear or any frustration surrounding caretaker responsibilities, demands, time pressures. Where do you feel those in your body? And then acknowledging that everyone here in the room, as they've shared today, experiences their own fears, frustrations, fatigue. At sometimes not being up to the job of caretaking, whether it be professional or for loved ones.
And then just taking a moment here to acknowledge that reaching the limits of our practice of compassion as a separate personal activity makes us more ready to receive help from the compassionate realms beyond our discriminating awareness. And finally, we realize the intimate connection between the conventional truth and the ultimate truth through this practice of compassion that is coming forward through us. Thank you all. I'm going to turn the mic back over to Jeff now. Looks like we'll um, finish a few minutes early. Um, Really enjoyed your participation and coming out today. We, um, I think a lot of you know, we have a Insight World Aid being the we in this sentence. are planning our first trip to Cambodia. And I know several people here are uh, signed up or planning on signing up. So that's very uh, heartening to get to know you better and spend some time. Uh, If you haven't looked at our table yet, we have some literature there. We have a fundraising campaign. We're partnering with a larger uh, group of volunteers, Cambodian Americans actually from Long Beach, who will be going to... um, do all of the orchestration and we'll be kind of going along with them, but providing teachings on mindfulness and compassion, at least for our volunteers, but some expression of their volunteers as well in that. And we are um, looking to raise um, funds. Also, we're taking old prescription eyeglasses 
toothbrushes um, and medications over there. So please uh, look at that if you wish. And um, we're also part of the fundraising is to uh, sell these tote bags. I think we have an example here <laughs> available in green and, and blue. Book bags. Yeah, with our logo on it. Grocery bags. So, um, yeah, I hope uh, we'll, we'll plan on having another event like this, probably a different topic in six months when we get back from our our voyage over there. And uh, again, thank you all for coming. Special thanks to Brian McKenzie, our, our cameraman back there behind the scenes. Thank you. <laughs> And may, may you all be peaceful and uh, find the mindfulness and compassion in your self-care and your caring of others.